This is worth repeating from Texas Public Radio. Real stories told by your neighbors and friends and recorded live over the last couple of years in San Antonio. I'm Andrea Vocab Sanderson, San Antonio Poet Laureate. Nowadays, Lorenzo Gomez is a San Antonio tech advocate and a CEO. But in the mid-90s, he was a middle schooler on the west side of San Antonio. He tells a story about growing up in a turbulent time. So uh, when I was, I went to middle school at a place called Tafoya. It's on the west side. And uh, yeah, I've got some Tafoya Toros here. It's, so a little context for you. Tafoya is in the poorest zip code in all of Bear County and, and actually arguably one uh, poor zip code in one of the country. And uh, when I went there in 1993 as a sixth grader, uh, San Antonio was in the midst of a 10-year surge in gang violence. It was its highest level of gang violence in the city's history. And the year I went, in, the year I got to seventh grade, which is 1994, um, it was the highest level of drive-by shootings. So there was 3.5 drive-by shootings every day that year. And my neighborhood was the second hottest spot for drive-bys. Uh, and so as a 12, 13-year-old, I was kind of scared all the time. And so by the time I got to eighth grade, I was really afraid. But the main thing I had to be afraid of at the FOIA was gangs. There was three main gangs that ran our school. The first gang was called the NDs, and I still don't know what it stood for. Uh, I think it had to do with something about Notre Dame, but a friend of mine once said that he thought it stood for no dads, which is really depressing, <laughs> and I hope it's not true. Uh, but, but these were like the biggest, baddest vatos in our school, and like they were, it's like they had all flunked three grades, and so they were adults masquerading as middle school kids. <laughs> Uh, but they didn't really cause any trouble. It's so, like middle school is beneath them, so they, they did all their badness outside the school, right? Um, and so I didn't really worry about them. The second gang was really, it was a gang, but it was run by one guy named Raymond. And, uh, and he was the leader of their crew. They didn't have a name. It was just his crew. And I met him my first day of middle school in sixth grade in PE class, in gym class. And when I met him, he said, hey, my name is Raymond. And the next thing he said was, I'm part of the junior Mexican mafia. And I was like, what? And I, I, I didn't know what to say. I was like, it sounds like Hitler, uh, Hitler youth camp to me. But, and so in order to prove his mafioness, he opened his backpack and showed me a loaded gun. Uh, so this is sixth grade. We were 12 years old, by the way. And so, uh, so that was Raymond. And Raymond's crew was, was pretty benign. You know, they didn't really cause trouble, but I was very keenly aware of them. The third gang at the FOIA, I hated. And they are definitely the villains of this story. They were called the SOT, and they stood for the stupidest name, the Studs of the FOIA. And I hated them. I hated them because they were posers to me. They weren't like, they were a bunch of middle class kids that got bussed to our school, and they just were pretending that they were in a gang, and they wanted to be tough. But you, I, you had to worry about them because there were so many of them, and they, they were so keen to pick fights that they were always causing trouble. And so I hated their guts. Um, and the sort of fourth not real gang was me and my buddies. And so me, so I, me and my crew, we were the punk rock, uh, alternative grunge, flannel wearing, comic book reading, video game playing uh, 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 nerds. That's what we did. And so we, we didn't want to be in the gang culture. We hated it. All we wanted to do was play basketball and listen to grunge music from Seattle, right? Uh, and so... But what kept us safe from the gangs is the biggest kid in all of Tafoya was in our crew. His name was Robert, but he went by Big Mac. And the reason his name was Big Mac was because in middle school, he was 6'3", 300 pounds, and he had not flunked, right? That was just out of the box, pow. And so nobody messed with us because of Big Mac. And so uh, we were, I was very grateful. So one day we were in gym class, and uh, 
we were making fun of the gangs and the gang culture, and somebody said, hey, we should give ourselves a name, and someone else said, yeah, we should call ourselves the Cool Flannel Club. And we all started laughing, and then Big Mac said, no, change the C to a K, and we'll be KFC. And we were like, yes! <laughs> and so we called ourselves KFC, and, and an unintended consequence of that was as soon as we gave ourselves a name, all the other gangs were like, oh, you're a gang. And then things got serious. And so as soon as, soon as we gave ourselves a name, the SOT wanted to start a fight with us. They wanted to test our gangness, which was the last thing we wanted. And so what happened is one day we were playing basketball and uh, we, were, we were in the middle of a shot and this Doritos bag of sand came crashing down on us and we looked and the SOTs were over there loading up another one ready to fire it and at the FOIA they, they would graffiti the wall so much that they would hire this company to sandblast the walls and uh, so there was these mounds of sand and so the SOT would take it and fill up old coke bottles and bags of chips and throw it at us and they were trying to get us to start a fight because they wanted to beat us up and so we were the punk artists we didn't want to fight them so we avoided this for a long, for weeks, and finally we almost got into a fight with them. Someone said something, and these 10 guys kind of came up and, you know, kind of faced us down. And the only reason it didn't go down that day was because Big Mac was 6'3, 300 pounds. And, but that day's the day I did my street hustle. And I said, you know what? I was so afraid, I was so terrified that I said, I'm going to run a hustle on these guys and put an end to them. And so the next day I was walking to lunch, and, uh, I ran into Raymond, and Raymond goes, hey, Lorenzo, what's up? And I said, nah, it's all good, man. And I said, hey, don't you think the studs at the foyer are a bunch of jerks? And he's like, yeah, dude, I hate those guys. And I said, what if we all jumped them? And he was like, yeah, man, I'd be down with that. And I was like, sweet, I had just put the first chess move in my street hustle out. And like Don Corleone, I was like, it's time to declare war here. And I said, I got, the, I got Raymond's crew, I can get KFC, right? I know I could convince them, if I could just get the NDs on board, we will destroy these dudes, okay? I'm 14 years old, by the way, thinking this, okay? So I, so I decided one day to go and wait. There was one guy in the NDs that loved me, his name was Adrian, and I was gonna pitch Adrian, I was gonna roll out my PowerPoint and walk him through my pitch <laughs> on why we should jump the SOTs, and so, uh, and so I'm waiting for him one day, and one of the other horrible rituals of uh, Tafoya at that time was this thing called Garia. And, and Garia was this really violent ritual that was just terrible. And if anybody found out it was your birthday, you'd get jumped. And so just for no reason, they'd, like 10 guys would beat you up and throw you in the shower, right? And so I'm standing there, and I'm waiting for Adrian to pitch him my, my street hustle. And then I, all of a sudden, I heard this huge commotion. And as I looked, somebody said, hey, it's Adrian's birthday. And so at the, at the moment this guy said that, 20 SOTs ran to the bathroom where he was to jump him. And then about nine NDs ran behind him to give their boys some, some support. So I, I started walking to the bathroom and I blinked. And as I blinked, something had happened that I hadn't anticipated in my street hustle. And that's that the adults intervened. And I blinked my eyes and all of a sudden there were like 50 cops and 30 adults everywhere. And what I lear later learned was that the police officer at the school had noticed what was going on and had started a sting operation to crack down on us eighth grader gang dudes. <laughs> and so the day they, they launched it was the day that Adrian's birthday went down. So they came in, they arrested everybody in the fight, which I wasn't one of them, and there was two police vans full of eighth graders cuffed and they, they expelled everybody that day. And so the KFC crew got to live out the rest of eighth grade not being afraid of getting. And, and I was so thankful because at the last day of school, we all celebrated by dressing up as reservoir dogs. 
And, uh, and nobody wanted to be Mr. Pink because we were in middle school. But, and so, but what I, the thing about that story was I'm very grateful that the adults intervened because I really, I'm really grateful that I'm not here telling you the story of how I successfully orchestrated 60 14-year-olds beating up another 30 14-year-olds group. And so all, all I'll say as I end is cheers to the hustles we don't actually pull off. So thank you very much. You can read more stories about Lorenzo's early life in his book, Tafoya Toro, Three Years of Fear. Amy Whitley's story is about a trip to Hawaii, a place that prides itself on hospitality and relaxation. At least, that's what she expected to find there. I'm sitting in the Seattle-Tacoma airport, and I am getting ready to board a flight to Maui uh, for a two-week trip with a man I have only known for about two months. Yeah, not probably the most rational decision one has ever made, maybe even a risky decision. 36 hours later, I am sitting in a rusty little pickup named Dirty Girl with a pair of binoculars, and I'm peering across the mountainside where all my stuff is. And I realize this decision probably needs a stronger word than risky. So day one, I am on the flight. We are somewhere over the Pacific Ocean between Seattle and Maui. And the man that I have boarded the flight with turns into, morphs into a total asshole. It's happened, it's happened to everybody, right? Total asshole. Yeah, so we are less than, well, I don't even think we're 10 minutes on the ground. Yeah, probably not even 10 minutes. And we are heading down to baggage claim and, and I have an altercation with the escalator. I get on the escalator in the bag that I am taking with me, which by the way, okay, I'm gonna call him assholio because this is what my friend says, assholio, he was a total assholio. I am dragging his bag and I make it on the escalator, the bag does not, I am going both ways. I can't think quick enough to let go of the handle of the bag. All I can think is that my Maui trip is going to end right here on this escalator and body parts are going to be sucked into those stairs, you know, because I'm kind of scared of escalators just a little bit. And all of a sudden, no, the bag joins me and we're together and I'm thinking, oh man, I dodged that bullet. Mm -mm -mm." Because behind me, the first words that have come out of his mouth since we got off the plane are like this. Don't you even know how to ride an escalator? And I'm like, uh, yeah, okay, well, yeah, well, sort of, I do. But the day y'all went downhill from there, and the brightest spot of day one was Assholio completely stopped talking to me. Cone of silence. Yeah, wow. So, <laughs> so before we go to day two, There are some things I need to tell you about the trip. Number one, I went with the understanding that I would be able to telework because I needed to work, I needed internet, I needed Wi-Fi. Good Wi-Fi, good internet. Two, we were not staying at a luxury Maui resort. We were going to be, it was billed to me as glamping. I mean, I'm a camper, I like camping, but when I, glamping means like little Airstream trailers or this pretty little canvas tent with fairy lights on it, or maybe because we're in Hawaii, it's gonna be a little hut with a grass roof. Oh, no, 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 no. The van picks us up, takes us up the mountain. We are on this basically undeveloped mountainside 
platforms, nylon tents, Home Depot buckets with toilet seats for your nighttime needs, and one shower, maybe gonna be about 10 people using it, and the kiss of death, no internet. And number three, I did not pack my own bag for this trip. So, day two, I'm panicked, I'm stressed, Cone of silence is still going on with Asholio. And Lori, who happens to be one of the owners of the property, says, you know what, I'm gonna take you down the mountain, I'm gonna take you to a coffee shop, they have great internet, you can work, you know. And I'm like, hallelujah. So we get in her truck named Dirty Girl. And we start down, you know, every road in Maui seems to be windy, curvy, skinny, little. And I just spill my guts to Lori. I'm like, oh my God, this guy has turned into the most total asshole I've ever known. He was normal when we got on the plane. He's now a jerk. I'm like, oh my God. And she's like, you know, when you got out of the car, I was, and, and we, we talked for a while. I was like, what is a really nice girl like you doing with such an asshole? I'm thinking, oh, somebody that knows, somebody that knows. She said, you know, if you need any help over this trip, I'm there for you. I'm like, thank you. So the coffee shop has internet just like promised. Great internet, great internet. So the day goes with that incident. I'm working away, you know, it's all good. I'm like thinking, oh man, thank you, thank you, thank you. And then about mid-afternoon, my phone goes, ping, and I pick it up. Assholio has broken up with me on WhatsApp. <laughs> now, <laughs> yeah, 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 like I'm like, what the hell? Okay, this is a first. It's not totally unexpected, but it is a first. Well, <laughs> so at least I'm in a coffee shop with really good internet. So I get on, you know, the Hawaiian Airlines site, and I'm like, oh my god, I got to rebook my flight. I'm rebooking my flight back to Seattle. Okay, got the flight booked. Uh, okay, now I got to get up the mountain. I get to get on my shit, and I don't want to ever see that asshole again. Never, never, never want to see his face. So I'm sitting there going, she said she would help. She said she would help. So Lori shows up, and I'm like. He broke up with me on WhatsApp, my God. And I'm like, we have to go get my shit, and I don't want to ever see him again, but how are we going to do that? Because, you know, sightlines being with there. I'm like, I know the guy is, has to leave. Asshole has to leave. He's got an appointment. He's got, well, appointment, whatever. They got something going on downtown. I'm not going to go. It's down the mountain. We know there's a window of opportunity, but we can't drive right up to the campsite. How else are we going to know whether he's gone or not? Ah. Enter Lori. <laughs> and we go back to the binoculars. Because Lori knows the perfect vantage point to sit and sit in the cab of Dirty Girl and stare across the valley with her binoculars and see exactly what's good. Apparently she's done this a whole lot of times, right? It's like, you know, she's watched the campsite. So we're looking and we're waiting, you know, we gotta wait till the coast is clear till everybody gathers up all their shit and they get in the little, you know, other sh shitty van that they have and go down the mountain to whatever they're doing. They leave, Lori and I load up in Dirty Girl. They're my two new besties, Dirty Girl and Lori. And we head up to the mountain to get my stuff. There's, I, <laughs> I can't even describe to you. Okay, remember I said I did not pack my own bag, which means I had no luggage. There, I grabbed four Walmart shopping bags, right, out of the communal kitchen. These are not the little plastic bags that are free. These are the pretty little reusable bags, blue, with the little Maui island chain. You didn't know this, right? The, the Hawaiian island chain is printed on the reusable bags at Walmart. <laughs> it's, it's very beautiful. So I now have my set of four matching luggage, Walmart bags, pack all my shit in there, you know, from all the places, throw my bags in the back of Dirty Girl, 
We haul ass down the mountain because I'm in total flight mode at this point. I know he's not going to be back anytime soon, but I don't want to get caught on the mountain. Oh my God, you know, packing all my shit. We go down the mountain. I spend my last night in Maui, the paradise of Maui, in a bunk bed in a hostel. <laughs> so, yeah, well, it wasn't that bad, really. It was okay. Uh, the next day, I'm sitting, of course, you know, last minute flight plans. I am in the way, way, way. I'm in the very, very, very last row of the aircraft. I'm squished in there, right? And I'm sitting there, and the guy next to me thinks nothing can get, like, right any worse. The guy next to me takes off his shoes, and <laughs> the wall of stinky feet odor that hits me is enough to, like, I mean, really wake the dead. The flight attendant won't even look at me, you know, like, oh my God, <laughs> I'm like, please, please put me somewhere else. But as I'm sitting there with stinky feet wall hitting me, looking at the Pacific Ocean, you know, fading, well, not fading away, we're over the Pacific Ocean, but this, the, there's the shoreline of Maui, and suddenly it hits me, I have to get all my shit that's in Washington out of Assholio's loft and out of Assholio's car that it's in long-term parking before I can come home to Texas. And that's another story. <laughs> it was bad. Private eyes aren't something you hear about much outside of crime novels. But Charlie Parker worked for years as a private investigator in Texas and shares just one story from his career. The year was 1997. I was working as a private investigator and a bodyguard. I didn't bodyguard rock stars or athletes. My clients all had one thing in common. They were all scared to death. I bodyguarded women who had been beaten to a pulp and their husbands had protective orders. I bodyguarded children who the women thought that their husbands or ex-husbands might take them to Iran or Mexico. When a West Side mother called me and said she had two sons in the Texas prison system, one killed in a drive-by, and she wanted the other one kept alive through Christmas, I did it. That's what the kind of jobs I had to do. I worked for John Walsh in America's Most Wanted, hunting killers from the beautiful hills of Tennessee, to the badass streets of Mexico. I'd worked for Inside Edition and some of the other shows, so it didn't shock me when I got a call in November of 97 from Hard Copy. They said a young boy had gone missing in 1994. Suddenly, three years later, he appeared in Spain. He said he'd been tortured. He said he'd been sexually abused. He'd been beaten and fluids had been injected into his eyes to change the color. He said he was made to speak with an accent. I located the mother of the family and the producer for hard copy and myself and a cameraman headed north of San Antonio. I was fortunate when we set up in the house to be able to sit where I could see a picture of the first boy missing in 94. And I could look this way and see a picture of the boy being interviewed. The boy in the picture had blue-gray eyes. The boy in the interview had brown eyes. I asked the cameraman to zoom in on his ears. Believe it or not, the ear is the only part of the human body that doesn't age. I knew that Scotland Yard had used the ears to identify people. 
When I got back to my office, I compared the ears, and I knew at once I had an imposter. I picked up the phone and called Trinity University, the language school, and asked if it were possible for a person to hold on to their identity and their accent weeks after they had been captured. He reminded me that in Hanoi Hilton in Vietnam, when the prisoners of war were released, some of them did the gestures, they bowed, they had the high-pitched voice like the Vietnamese, but they lost their accents. I called the University of uh, UTSA and asked for their ophthalmology school. I said, is it possible to shoot any kind of fluid into a person's eyes and change them from blue to brown? They said no. I knew I had an imposter. I picked up the phone and called the mother, the house we had left. I said, get out of the house. It's not him. He's a fake. She hung up. A few minutes later, I got a call from the boy in the house on the interview. He said, who do you think you are? He said, immigration has cleared me and given me a passport. He said, the FBI has cleared me. He said, who do you think you are? And he slammed the phone down. I called him back. I said, the question is, who are you? I said, if any harm comes to that family, I'll come for you. Okay, I picked up the phone then and telephoned the FBI. Agent Nancy Fisher, great agent. She said, Charlie, let me tell you, it's an FBI case. If you interfere, you can be charged with obstruction of justice. Unbeknownst to me, the FBI had hired a forensic artist and they had taken the measurements between the boy's eyes, the jawline, and the chin. They declared that he was who he said he was. I tried to talk about the ears, but when you try to talk about ears, people simply don't believe you. <laughs> so I called a Frenchman I knew in Paris. I said, what have I got here? And he laughed and he talked down to me like sometimes Frenchmen talk to Americans. He said, it's obvious. <laughs> He said, it's obvious. He said, you've got a French Moroccan terrorist. Well, I hadn't heard the terrorist word. You didn't hear that till after 9-11. I said, what is he here for? He said, he's there to blow something up. He said, they've blown up things all over Paris. They're doing it as we speak. So I began to tail the guy. I began to follow his mother, and I followed him. I switched from covert surveillance to overt surveillance, hoping he would spot me wanting him to spot me, and it worked. And I got under his skin, and I developed a relationship with him. He knew that I knew he wasn't who he said he was. It was a difficult time for me. My wife and I were under the pressure of worrying about what the FBI would do, worrying about what other people might do. We tried to call SAPD. They didn't even call us back. So we had our problems. But we went after him, and we stayed after him. Eventually, his mother drove him by the John Wood Middle School, where he attended school, and he didn't recognize it. She called me in the middle of the night. She said, it's not him, it's not him. She said, he's got a baseball bat and he's gone crazy. So I made the scene, I went over there, I calmed him down. I got him off in a corner and I said, look, I know you're going through the pressure of lying and saying you're not who you are. 
Meet me tomorrow. I'll pick you up here and we'll man on man talk about it. So we do. I got my wife down the street with my gun. <laughs> I carried it in an ankle holster back then. And I made sure when I met him, he saw my ankle was free, no weapon. So he would be calm and would talk to me. We sat down in the restaurant. I said, are you gonna tell me who you are? He said, I'm Frederick Bourdain, and I'm wanted by Interpol. Interpol is the god of the cops to me. I mean, if you're wanted by Interpol, what in the world have you done? <laughs> he proceeded to tell me. I waited a, a good amount of time. I went into the restroom and called Agent Fisher. I said, he just told me he was Frederick Bourdain. He's called the chameleon, and he's wanted all over in Europe. She said, hold him, we're getting a warrant. So they picked him up. They, they captured him, took him in, and did the perp walk. A beautiful story transpired from all of this, and four years ago, a documentary was made. Thank you. There are a lot of obsessive parents out there, but Bernadette Smith's mother wasn't one of them as she explains in our final story. It was about a, just over a decade ago, I was sitting on the couch in my mom's sitting room in Ireland, and we we're watching one of those really bloody forensic shows that she loved and scared the hell out of me. And she turned to me and she said, did that hole in the roof of your mouth ever close up? And I said, what hole in the roof of my mouth? And she said, you were born with a hole in the roof of your mouth. Did it ever get closed up? <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, they wanted to operate. I didn't want them to. I said, you know, let's see how it goes. And I wondered. And I thought, 45 years later, you think to ask me? <laughs> there are a lot of obsessive parents out there. My mother was not one of them. She had a rather cavalier attitude to how mothers and women were supposed to act, and uh, very, very little respect for proprieties. Like uh, once day, she used to go in every Saturday to do the weekly shopping on the bus. She'd take the 10 o'clock bus in, the 1 o'clock bus home. She got off the 10 o'clock bus and met a woman and said, who said, Mrs. Smith, oh, how are you? How are things? I hear your Bernadette is pregnant. And Mom said, what is? That's the first I heard about it. And she goes off and does her shopping for the, day, for the morning. And she gets the one o'clock bus home, and while she's waiting for the bus, another woman comes up to her and says, well, no, hello, Mrs. Smith, I hear your Bernadette's getting married. And Mom goes, well, I'm really glad to hear that, because I only just heard she was pregnant. <laughs> she had a rather, our house was like a halfway house in the village. Um, village kids hung out in our house. And um, in the wintertime, we'd watch TV, and often there was nothing good on TV. So this one day, my mom, being who she was, decided that she would surprise us all with a, a video in the days of video. It's a Netflix to you younger people. Um, <laughs> and so she goes into the local town, and she goes into the video shop, and she just went to a movie. And she knows nothing about movies, so she sees one with a um, picture of a truck on the front of us, and she remembered we'd all loved Convoy. 
So she gets that, she brings it home, she doesn't tell us. Ourselves and half of the village kids, ranging from about age seven to 17, are in the sitting room and she, um, and we're all complaining that there's nothing good on the TV and the fire's lighting and we're moaning and mom reaches into her bag, pulls out the video, walks over to the TV, puts it into the rented video recorder, by the way, not bought, and, um, and presses play and walks back, sits, she had a special chair sitting by the side of the fire, sits in her chair and smiles very, 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 very happy with herself and the video starts. And we're all rather excited at this and so it opens up and it's got a truck and it's got a couple and we see them kissing and we think, oh God, it's one of those romantic movies. And then they don't stop there. <laughs> and the video keeps running and everybody is afraid to do anything about it. And my brothers are sitting there with these like shocked and yet surprised and happy looks on their faces. <laughs> my mom is dying by the fire and eventually gets up, grabs her handbag and runs out of the room and somebody thinks to take the, DV, the video out of the video player and um, stop it. Now I'm pretty sure my brothers put it back in later on that night, <laughs> but we, I, don't, I can't prove it. She, mom at that point refused to go into either down the village or into the local town for at least a month because she realized and she refused to return the, the video. One of my brothers had to do it. Um, and so she, she, because she said that, you know, she was mortified. She thought that everyone would have thought she was, you know, doing something terrible to the children in the village um, corrupting their minds or whatever. Um, uh, and really that's in many, many ways who she was. She did survive the mortification of having shown a porn movie to the village children. <laughs> Barely. Um, the church women were never very fond of her in the first place anyway, so you know. Um, my cleft palate apparently righted itself. And there's probably not a single day goes by that myself and my eight siblings don't miss my mother who didn't have the time to be obsessed about any one of us at any one time. Thank you. Storytellers you just heard received guidance from our story coaches, Paul Flav, Amy Harberger, and Vanessa Martinez. We'll be holding live storytelling events again as soon as it's safe to do so. If you have a story to tell, or you know someone with a great story, get in touch with us at tpr.org. Worth Repeating events are produced by Paul Flav and Kim Johnson. The podcast is produced by Ben Henry. Our news director is Dan Katz. Production assistance from Rob Martinez and Kyle Perez. Bobby Saluche is TPR's Vice President of Marketing and Communications. Joyce Slocum is TPR's President and CEO. Again, I'm Andrea Vocab Sanderson, San Antonio Poet Laureate. Talk to you next time.